Most of you are aware that we here at the church at Lockton Springs are a member of a larger family of churches. Uh, we're blessed to be a member of a larger family of churches. As a family of churches, we have set a five-year vision, the direction we want to go, the things that the leadership feels like God is leading us to do. And that five-year vision starts like this. In response to God's leading, we will pursue 10,000 disciples-making-disciples relationships as a result of initiating 500,000 gospel conversations. 10,000 disciples making disciples, 500,000 gospel conversations. Now, as we look around this room on a Labor Day weekend at this intimate gathering, this local expression of the body of Christ, those, those numbers, 10,000 and 500,000, are huge and can be overwhelming. Um, what we would love to do in this sermon series, this How to Make Disciples, very practical sermon series, is dive into those big and scary numbers. Start to unpack the meaning behind the numbers. Recognize that they're not arbitrary. Recognize that they're not quotas. Start to define terms like, like disciple, gospel conversations, kind of wipe out some of the stigma and the confusion, the lack of clarity that goes along with some of those phrases that we throw around assuming everyone knows what we're talking about. Now, in an attempt to do this, we started a few weeks ago with that classic disciple-making passage, Matthew 28, the Great Commission. And what we looked at was as, as Jesus sends his disciples into the nations, go and make disciples of all nations, we recognize that, that that command was couched in his authority. He says, because all authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth, therefore go and make disciples. That command is based on the power of Jesus. And along with that, we looked at the promise of his presence as Matthew closes his gospel, closes the Great Commission with Jesus' incredible words of comfort, I will be with you even to the end of the age. We don't do this alone. We don't do this for Jesus. We do this with Jesus. Two weeks ago, we looked at Matthew 4, kind of the initial uh, calling of those first four disciples, those fishermen on the Sea of Galilee, where, where Jesus famously calls to them from the shore and says, follow me and I will make you fishers of people. Those four guys dropped everything, kind of gave up ownership rights to their life, to their careers, to their families, so that they could follow Jesus. And then last week, we found ourselves in Matthew chapter 9, beginning to explore, unpack, confront that, that classic spiritual question of what in the world is breaking my heart and what am I doing about it? 
And as we started to unpack that question, we look at the compassion of Jesus. What broke his heart? As he looks at the crowds that were following him and he saw they were sheep without shepherds. They were lost, they were searching, they were desperate. And his heart was broken for, the, for, for those people. He had compassion on the crowds. As we explored that passage, we began to explore the idea of us as followers of Christ, as disciples, what it would be like if we could begin to look at the world through the eyes of Jesus. As we see that, that despair, as we see those around us that are lost and searching and know they need something, we look at the world and see the same things, we see the same tragedies, but we see them through a lens of hope. This week, we get to follow up that passage in, in Matthew chapter 9, immediately with the verses at the beginning of Matthew chapter 10. As Jesus in chapter 9 tells his disciples, he gathers them around, and he has this hope of the harvest, and he says... He says, if your heart is broken for these people, pray that the Lord send workers into his harvest. And we see in chapter 10, the answer to that prayer might not have been exactly what the disciples wanted it to be. The answer was they were the workers getting sent into the harvest. This morning, we get to look at what it means to be living on mission. Living on mission with a living Savior. Now, I grew up the son of a Southern Baptist pastor. Some of you in here may have known my father. He was probably the most incredible man I've ever met. He loved unconditionally, like truly, desperately loved those around him. It didn't matter where you were from. It didn't matter how you lived, what you thought, whether you agreed with him or not. He just loved. Because he loved so well, he was beloved. That was my father as a pastor. Now, my father as a preacher... He was the old school Southern Baptist preacher, you know, who kind of had this style where the gospel wasn't proclaimed unless done so in three points, all of which started with the same letter. Anybody else grew up with that Southern Baptist preacher? Yeah? Uh, that, that, that was my dad. Tomorrow is my dad's birthday. He would have been 70 years old. So in his honor... This morning, I want to look at what it looks like to live on mission. I want to break down that passage about living on mission with Jesus and do so by looking at the men, the master, and the message. You see what I did there? The men of the mission the master of the mission, and the message of the mission. Would you guys turn back with me to this passage that Byron read for us this morning? And let's start back in these first verses in Matthew chapter 10. 
Matthew writes, Summoning his 12 disciples, he gave them authority over unclean spirits to drive them out and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. Now, the first thing we see when we look at these verses is, is Jesus summons his 12 disciples, and then he sends out apostles. That word apostles, it's the first time that's used in the New Testament. Matthew uses it here. It, it means those that are sent out. We've got the disciples, the followers, the learners, the students, those that came along with Jesus gave up ownership to their, to their lives and their career and their family to, to, to learn from him, to sit at his feet, and now he sends them out and they become apostles. Okay, Labor Day weekend, kind of an intimate gathering. Let's do a little crowd participation. As we look at this list of these 12 men, what are some things that you notice? What are some things that you know about this list of the disciples that we have in Matthew chapter 10. Brothers, a couple of sets of brothers, absolutely. Who else? None of them are professionals. That's true, that's true, David. These, this, this list, you look at these names and, and there's nothing extraordinary, right? None of these guys are, are professional pastors. They're not rabbis. They don't have three degrees hanging on the wall. Um, they don't have any sort of extraordinary wealth or any sort of extraordinary social influence. They don't have 50,000 Instagram followers. Um, they don't have a, a, a blog or any sort of channel for people to, to follow along with their lives. They're just, in every way, kind of ordinary folks that were handpicked by Jesus. Sets of brothers, fishermen, a tax collector, handpicked out of the thousands of people to be sent out as apostles. Another thing I notice when I, when I read these names, as you kind of dig into who these men were, I always think about the incredible diversity of this list. Now, there's not necessarily kind of um, a, a great deal of ethnic diversity because of travel at the time. You know, it's not like people were, were flying in from, from all over the world to live in Galilee. Most of these men had very similar ethnic backgrounds, very similar religious backgrounds, but their experiences, their ideas, their thoughts, processes were incredibly diverse. Let's look at, at two examples on this list. We've got Matthew the tax collector, who he was called by Jesus just one chapter prior in Matthew chapter 9. And, and what we know about tax collectors at the time is Matthew would have been an absolute religious 
cultural, social outcast amongst the Jews. Because he was a Jew that had chosen to go into an incredibly corrupt profession and side with the Roman occupiers. He was a Jew that essentially had become rich at the expense of his Jewish brethren. As a result, he was considered unclean in every sense of the word. He was a religious traitor. Now, one of the other men on this list, Simon the Zealot. Now, that word zealot, it doesn't just mean that Simon was zealous. You see that it's with a capital Z. The zealots were an actual group of people. They were kind of the self-appointed ecclesiastic militia. See, the Jews for generations, for centuries, had been waiting on the kingdom of God. Um, many, most even, considered that would be a, a physical kingdom. You know, castles and knights and damsels in distress and all of those things. And, and Simon was a part of a militaristic group of Jews that would stop at nothing to bring about that kingdom. Violence, even their own death. He was a religious militant. The, the fact here is that if, if Simon the Zealot had met Matthew the tax collector under any other circumstances other than in the company of Jesus Christ, Simon would probably have stuck a dagger into him. This is the type of diversity that we have in this group. But the tremendous truth that we have here is that people who hate one another when in the company of Jesus come to love one another. William Barclay writes, too often religion has been a means of creating divisions. It was meant to be, and in the presence of the living Jesus was, a means of bringing together those who without Christ were separated from each other. We see in these simple verses, in this list of men that were sent out on this mission, what it looks like to be unified in Christ. Because remember, sometimes we think about the disciples as kind of one monolithic group, but it's not as though once they received, acquiesced to this call, they automatically thought exactly like everybody else. Simon the Zealot didn't all of a sudden love people he considered to be religious traitors. Matthew didn't all of a sudden begin thinking like a zealot, but despite their differences, there was unity. They loved one another. We see in this list the unity in Christ and how Christ can use ordinary people on his mission. 
Now, the reason Christ can use ordinary people on his mission is because he is the one that is sending them out as the master. As we go back to verse 1, we see summoning his 12 disciples, he gave them authority. Back to crowd participation time. I'm not afraid. What does it mean that Christ gave them authority? I'm sorry? It wasn't their own authority, exactly. It was, it was his authority, sure. We see that in, in, in Matthew 28, in the Great Commission. As we've already talked about this morning, you know, Christ says, all authority has been given to me, and so that I'm commissioning you to go out. In, in the Gospel of Mark, as Mark tells the story, he uses, he uses a different word. God, Mark says that these men were appointed It's a word that would have been used for a a king that was appointing a person to an official position within the kingdom. Christ, the master, was sending out these men with his authority, like a king sending out a messenger, commissioned with the authority of royalty on his back. We also see in verse 10 that as he sends them out, he tells these men, don't take anything with you. Don't take any food or water or clothes. You know, don't don't take your, your iPhone and your big headphones and don't take, a, you know, volumes of, of theology. Don't, you don't need to take anything. Just Go. Why would Christ send these guys out with nothing on this mission? So they were depending on him. That's exactly right. So often, David, we, we fall back on our own capacity, on our own strengths. We, we kind of take ownership of Christ's mission. You know, God, all right, I hear you. I got you. It's a great idea. I'm on it. I'll let you know when it's taken care of. And in doing so, we get to make these plans based on our own strengths, our own capacity, more often based on avoiding our own weaknesses. God, that's a a great idea. And and I I like where your head is. Um, That's not really my strong suit. So I'm going to do this thing over here, and I'll meet you on the other side. By giving these men his authority, by sending them out with nothing of their own, they were obligated to rely on God as they were carrying out this mission. They were obligated to rely on the master of the mission. They were obligated to recognize it was the master's mission and not theirs. So many years ago when God sent Nick and I to Italy to work and to serve there, um, by far the largest frustration 
was those early months and even first couple of years when we didn't know the language or were first learning the language. You know, we, we arrived in this country speaking Italian like most of you, spaghetti, lasagna, um, vino, I probably could have, could have stumbled my way through. That was about all I had. And suddenly, every bit of my own capacity was stripped from me. I could no longer rely on my own charisma and good looks, which, you know, let's be honest, was a lot that was taken from me. Um, It was the first time in my life that every morning I had to wake up and say, all right, God, what happens now? Because I got nothing. I've got grunts and some points and really bad charades. If I am going to get through this day, it has to be on your strength, not mine. In that, I was reminded day after day, month after month, that our call was for his mission, not for ours. I was being sent by the master. Not because I was in any way capable of performing the task he had laid in front of us. So as the master in chapter 10 sends out these men for his mission, He sends them with an incredibly simple message. What message did Jesus send these apostles out with? I'll give you a hint. Verse 7. He did tell them where to go. That's exactly right. He gave them specific directions on which town to go to. But what, which message was he, was he gonna, were they going to take into that city? There we go. I've been waiting on you. The kingdom of heaven is near. That's exactly right. The kingdom of heaven is near. Everybody's like, oh, yeah, that's good. What the heck does that mean? It's the same message that John the Baptist was preaching while covered in camel hair and eating locust in the middle of nowhere in Matthew chapter 3. As Jesus comes on the scene and begins his ministry throughout Galilee, it's the exact same message we see him in Matthew chapter 4. He goes from town to town, village to village, preaching the kingdom of heaven is near. And now, as the master sends out these men on his mission, he sends them out with one simple message. Yes, he says, go to this town, don't go to that town. I'm giving you all this authority, but it's all founded on when you go, preach this message, the kingdom of heaven is near. 
That message was specifically designed, those words were specifically crafted so that they would have maximum impact on the Jewish towns and villages that they were going to on this specific mission. You see, the Jews, as we've kind of already discussed this morning, for for generations, for centuries, had been waiting. They had been waiting on the kingdom of God. They were confused as to what that might look like. Many, if not most, thought it would be a physical kingdom. But, but this, this word is, is maybe more clearly translated as reign. The dominion of God is here. And by taking that message, the Jews would stop and listen. And what the apostles were saying is, I've got good news. The wait is over. What you have been waiting on your whole life, what your great-grandparents were waiting on their entire life, what their great-grandparents were waiting on, it's here. The kingdom is near, and it's here in the form of the Messiah, the chosen one. His name is Jesus and you can know him. It's not a new message in the scriptures, the nearness of God. In, in Isaiah 55, we see, we see Isaiah say, call on the Lord for he is near. Jeremiah 23, God says, I am close by. What do you think? You can go to a cave and get away from me? I am God, I fill all of heaven and all of earth. Six chapters later in Jeremiah 29, God says, you will seek me with all of your heart and when you do, you will find me because I'm here. Psalm after psalm after psalm. We praise the nearness of God. Psalm 73, right? The the nearness of God is my good. The Lord is my refuge. And then in Ephesians chapter 2, we see Paul writing to the church at Ephesus and telling them, those of you that were far from God have been brought near to him by the blood of Jesus Christ. That is the message of the mission. God is near. You see, we talk about uh, disciples and gospel conversations and, and sometimes we get so confused and we try so hard and we, we overthink it and we overcomplicate it. What do I say in this situation and what do I say in that situation and, and what do I say to my neighbor that I, we just don't see eye to eye on anything? The message is so simple and clear. God is near, and you can know him through his son, Jesus Christ. You know, a few chapters to the right of where we've been camped this morning. That chapter, Matthew 28, that we we continue to go back to. We see Jesus 
sending his disciples to the nations, like in chapter 10, as he's sending his disciples to the surrounding towns and villages. Go and make disciples. Carrying this message, the kingdom of God is near. His instructions were not exclusive to those men. Acts 1.8, as, as Jesus just before his ascension is standing in front of the entire gathered assembly of his followers, what does he say? You will be my witnesses. You will be my ambassadors in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is the call in the life of every man, woman, and child that professes to be a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm too young. You're not. I'm too old. You're not. I I don't know what to say. You do. Because the message is so clear and so simple. Guys, if you have never heard this before, hear me say it today. God is near to you. And you can know him. Through his son, Jesus Christ. If you profess to be a follower of Jesus Christ, God has commissioned you with his authority to take that simple message into the world. If you do not yet no, a living Savior. I would love to talk to you about that this morning. His message is clear. His message is simple. Would you pray with me? Father, I stand before you this morning. ordinary man lacking the capacity to carry out your mission on my own grateful that I have been sent by the master himself grateful that my message is so clear and simple and grateful beyond words that you are near. It's in your son's name that we pray this morning. Amen.